Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers for December 2017, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with Ann Powers about her new book, Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music. In this sweeping history of popular music in the United States, National Public Radio's acclaimed music critic examines how popular music shapes fundamental American ideas and beliefs, allowing us to communicate difficult emotions and truths about our most fraught social issues, most notably sex and race. In a survey that spans more than a century of music, Powers both heralds little-known artists such as Florence Mills, a contemporary of Josephine Baker, and gospel queen Dorothy Love Coates, and sheds new light on artists we think we know well, from the Beatles and Jim Morrison to Madonna and Beyonce. In telling the history of how American popular music and sexual intersect, Powers offers new insights into our nation's psyche and our soul. I began my interview with Ann Powers by asking her why she began her book by talking about the musical and cultural scene in New Orleans back in the 1800s. Well, I've lived in the South now for, gosh, nearing on a decade, um, and I love and visit New Orleans whenever I can. And I've come to think of New Orleans as really the the founding city of, of America. People look to New York or, yeah, you know, or Boston or whatever, but, but I think of that place as the seedbed of American culture. And so I wanted to go there in my book and kind of figure out what those fundamental elements are in, in music and how we relate to each other and pleasure and leisure. And what I found was a lot of mixing, <laughs> a lot of dancing, um, and also, you know, the realities of, of slavery and, and violence and oppression. So it's like the beauty and joy combined with the original sin of our country, all of it was happening there, and that's why I thought it was important to start there. For those who aren't familiar with Congo Square, talk about the importance of Congo Square in New Orleans. Congo Square is... Um, a place where you can still visit, although now it's, it's just a, an open space in um, Louis Armstrong Park near the French Quarter, and it is where enslaved people would have their markets on the weekends. They were allowed to gather and buy and sell food and other goods that represented their home countries in Africa, and they also danced and, um, and sang, and it became kind of a myth in America, you know, stemming from that reality, um, white observers of enslaved people's activities, you know, they were quite fascinated and uh, wrote about it and talked about it and, and made paintings and illustrations about it. And now Congo Square is this mythical origin point for music. And when I talk about it, you know, it, I talk about it as a place of freedom and beauty, but also of myth-making, you know. I mean, we don't have the original accounts of enslaved people. We don't have their voices. We only have white observers' voices about what they were doing. And I myself, as a white observer of this culture, I almost feel like 
you know, I'm in that position of the observer when I'm telling these stories of the 19th century, and Congo Square was a great kind of flashpoint to remind me of that. Let's jump up to Memphis. I've unfortunately not been in New Orleans. It's, it's on it's on the bucket list for sure. But oh, I gotta go. <laughs> oh, I gotta go. But I, I have it's been. It's magic. To, to it, yeah. Oh, from what everyone says, a good friend of mine, John John Sinclair, has has uh, spent a lot of time in New Orleans. But one place I have been that you write about uh, uh, very authoritatively in your book is Memphis, and that I, my wife and yeah. I just fell in love with the. The city, and it, it reminded us so much of Detroit. I mean, a glorious uh, yeah. place for music, and also a place that that's got a lot of really tough spots, and and has has got a lot of uh, issues when it comes to race. Talk, talk about your focus on Memphis in your book, and I mean, we'll get into Elvis and all of that stuff, but pre-Elvis, sure. what's going on in Memphis, and what makes it so important? Well, throughout my book, Good Booty, I, I, I try to go to the, the places where this phenomenon of the mix was happening, where, you know, cultures, subcultures, different kinds of people were colliding, and out of that comes our beautiful, diverse American culture. Um, Memphis, in early to mid-20th century, uh, became that city that New Orleans was, in the 19th century, it was a place of migration. It was a place where many African Americans moved, um, and obviously, you know, Southern whites also were there. Radio was a huge force in Memphis during that time, and you had some of the first uh, mixed radio programs. You know, you'd have blues in the morning and gospel in the afternoon. Well, maybe it was gospel in the morning, <laughs> blues yeah. in the afternoon, rock and roll at midnight. And and also, I look at Memphis as uh, a seedbed of gospel music, which I really talk about how gospel has come to be, a, how gospel has now been overlooked as the source of rock and roll. And, you know, Memphis has these amazing gospel quartets and, you know, churches and choirs and amazing women singers and all of that fed the spirit of rock and roll that then, of course, uh inspired Elvis and, and Little Richard and all the other greats. Yeah, I mentioned, too, you talk about the, these two important radio stations in Memphis, WDIA and WHBQ. For those not familiar, yeah. what, what was so important about those two stations? Well, WDIA especially, it, it, it had that diversity that I'm talking about. And both of those stations, they were they were stations that gave voice to all kinds of music. And as a listener, someone like Elvis Presley, you know, as a teenager, he could hear a wide array of sounds. And, and segregation, of course, was still in full force in the early, mid-20th century in the U.S., but not on the airwaves, at least not in terms of sequential programming. You know, you wouldn't necessarily hear uh, an hour that had black and white music together, but you could listen all day and hear all of that. And it was also just the, the lifeblood of the city, you know. It was where the news happened. It was where artists would have their own programs, you know, like the Blackwood Brothers, the, Go the Southern Gospel, White Gospel Quartet, um, and personalities would be born. Radio was so important. And, you know, it's interesting you should compare Memphis to Detroit because that is so true. It is absolutely true that those mid-century cities where African-American middle class could arise, you know, and where there was enough industrial 
uh, activity and, and manufacturing and, and, you know, enough to feed that African-American class, middle class, that's really what made for the greatest popular music because that class of people wanted leisure, they wanted fun, and they, they also wanted to create that music. So, you know, Detroit, Motown, you have that happening. In Memphis, you have gospel and rock and roll. And, um, yeah, I, those two cities are very connected on my map. Yeah, yeah. And, it, it, and it's hard to imagine, and a lot of people maybe not, don't realize this so much, Elvis Presley wouldn't have been Elvis Presley without gospel music. It's just so important. And am I wrong? Wasn't it, wasn't it the only Grammy he ever won in his lifetime was for one of his gospel albums? Isn't that right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. You know, when we listen to Elvis gospel, we think, oh, it's a little tame. It's him singing a hymn, like, how great thou art. And, um, you know, he did like that kind of more staid uh, hymnal style of sacred music. But what fed his rock and roll and what you can hear in his rock and roll recordings was going to East Trig Church and, and going to hear Herbert Brewster preach and hear Queen C. Anderson sing and, and also hear Southern Gospel quartets, white Southern Gospel quartets like the Blackwood Brothers and the Statesmen um, do these raucous and rollicking arrangements of, of gospel songs that directly uh, inspired his own vocal approach. Elvis tried out for the Blackwood Brothers. He wanted to be in their, uh, they kind of had this junior uh, varsity version <laughs> of themselves, and he tried to join that group. He wanted to be a gospel singer, and, you know, maybe it's a good thing he didn't get accepted, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because then he could become the king of rock and roll. So, all right, so tell us the story of Good Booty, the, the title of your book, and this uh, Little Richard song. Little Richard seems to have come from outer space i just i'm trying to what with this what was the impact you know back when he first this came came out with this music i mean i could just imagine people's parents having a complete nervous breakdown over like over <laughs> this guy is he a man is he a woman oh my god what is he singing about <laughs> little richard he's so incredible little, little richard seems to have come from outer space but really he came from the southern uh, bar circuit where he played in clubs with performers like Esquivel, um, people who, uh, you know, today might find fame on RuPaul's Drag Race, for example, very flamboyant performers. And Little Richard was inspired by that. These were uh, queer spaces. They were spaces where you could do, really, you know, you could be who you were. Um, they're very underground on the on the southern club circuit. And um, in that space, Little Richard would sing songs like the original Good Booty, which has quite racy lyrics about um, certain kinds of encounters. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and then when he recorded it for the radio, um, <clears throat> he had to redo it. So, you know, that kind of song wasn't going to be acceptable for the radio. So he and a young woman named Dorothy Labostri, who is a... Um, uh, African-American Creole woman uh, rewrote the song to be a little more nonsense, a little more um, non-sequitur, double entendre, not as direct, and it became uh, the great hit Tutti Frutti that we know today. Uh, but the good booty's still in there. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> still behind it. And, and I use the phrase good booty as the title of my book, for a few reasons. One, because it's so celebratory. 
uh, two because it honors little Richard, but the three because it has multiple meanings, you know, booty is like also treasure and sometimes yeah. stolen treasure, and that's an issue in American music, appropriation and, pe- you know, white artists stealing black artists' work, and so I wanted that kind of like, you know, shady quality in the title. <laughs> I think yeah, I yeah. There's so many great uh, artists who you discuss. T- tell me one or two, just your your personal favorites. What 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 are those artists who with music? Yeah, who you find the most sexy, the most sensual? There, there's a there's a few for me, and they sometimes they're not. You know, for me, it wasn't Janis Joplin. It was Grace yeah. Slick because Grace, uh, yeah. w- you know, w- was more cerebral and kind of, mm. you know, w- was less. Hey, let me put it all out there, and I kind of got more turned on by that. My, my one of my fi- sexiest films, mm-hmm. I think, is The Big Sleep, not Last Tango yeah. in Paris. You know, I'm kind of that that yeah. kind of person. But then, you know, but then there are other performers too. Like God, you know, J- Jim Morrison's always going to be sexy, and he's, you know, he was. Nothing, you know, it was anything but subtle. But, but, but for you, who are, your, who, are your, who are some of your faves, Dan? Well, in the 60s, I, I, as far as the 60s go, I became fascinated with The Grateful Dead, which um, I'm ne- I never was a deadhead in my life. I lived in San Francisco for almost 10 years, but um, I was a, I was like a punk rocker, new waver, I guess, back then, um, and didn't really like the dead. But as I looked into the counterculture and thought about um, the sexual revolution of the 60s, and especially the summer of love, I realized that the environment the dead created with their music, this very open, free-feeling environment where uh, women could just dance and twirl and do whatever they wanted, and maybe in the corner some hanky-panky's going on, and maybe right in front of you some hanky-panky's going on, people are tripping, whatever. The dead created music that allowed for so much individual expression, and it was almost because they weren't sex symbols that their music generated this erotic pull. Um, so that's my sort of counter story about the dead. As far as Jim Morrison, I really reassessed uh, how I felt about him in the process of writing this book. Uh, like many uh, rock fans, as a young girl, I loved Jim Morrison. I thought he was sexy, although he was dead when I was young. <laughs> but, but, you know, I grew up and I thought, oh, he's kind of cheesy and overblown. But then thinking about him in terms of the comic element of what he did and the fact that he loved Mad Magazine and that he saw himself as absurd on some level, then he made sense to me again, you know, the, the, the intensity of what he did. If you just, even though he seemed to take it so seriously, if you can see the wink in it, it's a lot more appealing. But I would say my favorite artist in that period will always be Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix you know, such an innovator, such an amazing player, wrote great songs, and really, you know, his dream of um, of this kind of love that, that doesn't erase difference, but uh, kind of moves right through difference and creates a new world. That's very appealing to me, to my utopian side. So, um, you know, I feel the tragedy of his loss. He's the one artist I wish I could have seen live, that I never had the opportunity to see live, um, but I treasure uh, what he left us, Jimi Hendrix. And my my final question: your your thoughts on the loss and what a devastating year last last year was for for, for music fans. But 
you know, the, the losses starting with, with Prince and David Bowie again, that when it ter- comes to sexuality, who, who just took things to an entirely uh, different universe for, for music lovers. Your thoughts on those two? Right. Well, David Bowie factors uh, very heavily in my 70s chapter. It's really through the journey of David Bowie to America in the early 70s where he uh, came to live um, that I traced the changes in that decade. And it was funny because when David Bowie died, I was working on that chapter and I woke up in the morning and got the message from my editor that it happened. And I walked into my office and my entire desk was covered in in Bowie. <laughs> so I was already, you know, immersed in his legacy at the moment it became a legacy. So I totally see him as incredibly valuable and important. As far as Prince goes, I mean, there's no other. Prince Prince is my ideal, my favorite musician of all time, and I personally felt that loss very heavily. I only got to meet him once, but... Um, but I feel so connected to his music. And again, like Jimi Hendrix, I I feel he offered a dream, a utopia that is worth uh, imagining and reimagining and lives on in his music. And um, it it does make me so sad that I'll never get to see him perform again, the greatest performer ever. Thanks for listening to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers for December 2017. Our interview was with Ann Powers about her new book, Good Booty, Love and Sex, Black and White, Body and Soul in American Music. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library.